Jackson Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn, at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. Part of the Mile High Sports Podcast Network, and I am excited to discuss Nikola Jokic and Serbia in the first segment of this podcast. We're going to do a couple of other things, but most importantly, Eurobasket is going on right now, and Serbia looks great. They look really, really good. I was a little bit concerned at times uh, just with some of the apathetic play, but you knew that they were going to get it done, that they're just kind of messing around a little bit, trying new things. It's not really the the most important time to deploy all of your best tactics or just run the ball through Jokic every single time. They might eventually do that in a uh, a, a gold medal game or a, or a semifinal or something like that. So there is, and it's, it's not the gold medal. I understand it's a championship, but say la vie. Uh, Nikola Jokic and Serbia are very good. They played their first two games and are 2-0. and Vlako Chanchar and Slovenia are 2-1 and in the in Group B. They are, I think, second in their bracket, uh, or at least tied for second. Not at first, but they are very, very good. They will probably get into the uh, group stage. But Serbia is basically by themselves at the top of Group D. And they've looked great against Netherlands and against Czech Republic. Let's talk about the first two games here. Joker, he really followed the same script in both of the games. He had a strong first quarter, really came out and set the tone. Then he relaxed in the next two quarters, wasn't necessarily going super hard during that time. And then fourth quarter rolls around or, or clutch time rolls around and he closes it out. He, he comes back to his senses or gets back into rhythm and help shut the door. That really happened in both of the games. Serbia versus Netherlands, Joker, he's just so much bigger than the other centers on the Netherlands. It was so noticeable. He was powerful. Anytime he went into the post, he was really a man among boys, in, in all honesty, in that game. Probably could have scored every time in the paint down there. But he attempted four threes. He wasn't in the paint the entire time. and. It also really wasn't the best defense from him. Obviously, it's the first game of the group stage. He's not trying to show his hand, He's and Serbia's not trying to play their best basketball just yet. When the elimination games come around, then I think you'll see a different level of energy and effort from Nikola Jokic. But for this one, not necessarily fantastic. Micic, though, he was unbelievable in this game, in the the Netherlands game on, I think it was Friday. He was unbelievable. 12 assists, just to two turnovers. Uh, Serbia as a team only had five turnovers in each of the games. That was a very impressive number. But Micic was very good. He made some dynamic baskets. He gets a little bit of aggressiveness uh, and then maybe a little bit too aggressive with the types of shots that he takes, more so than... More than Jokic, definitely. He kind of breaks from uh, the flow of the offense in ways where he just tries to generate a, a not a crazy shot, but could be an off-the-dribble three, could be a, a wild behind-the-back pass. He's good enough to do it, don't get me wrong. It is just interesting to see the stylistic differences sometimes between Micic himself and the rest of the Serbia team. Probably because he's talented enough to do it. Joker's backup, uh, Ristich, he's not the normal backup in this game or in this series. Uh, Milutinov, he was sick 
for the first two games. He should be back on Monday when you listen to this podcast. But Ristich, not really impressive in the first game. He was impressive in the second game, though, so I do want to give him credit there. But the real thing that I think separated Serbia from the Netherlands in this game, the Netherlands had fantastic shooting. De Jong, or De Jong very, very good. Uh, he, was, he was unbelievable. I know he's a great uh, Netherlands player. But Serbia's outside shooting was also really good. They were above 40% in this game particularly Marinkovic. Marinkovic was very, very good. Five threes in this one, and he was good in the second game too. But the team defense, in addition to that, uh, Serbia was able to shut down the Netherlands on several occasions and really just either wall off the paint or force some tough shots. For a while, Netherlands was taking a bunch of tough shots and making them in the first half. It was very impressive what they were doing. But ultimately, Serbia broke away. They won that game 100-76. to It was not close. It never really felt close, even though I think at late third, early fourth quarter, they were still in the game. But it never felt close. It felt like one was the big brother and the other was the little. So that was fine. Uh, Serbia, good tune-up game for Czech Republic the next day. Because Czech Republic's slightly better team, they had an awesome first quarter. And... uh, Actually, no, that's that's not true. Jokic had an awesome first quarter. And he actually played the first 11 minutes and 30 seconds or so in a row. Quarters in FIBA play are 10 minutes apiece. They're at 40 total minutes. Joker played the first 10 minutes and then into the second quarter as well. thought that was an interesting decision, but it worked. And it absolutely worked. And what he was doing to Balvin, the gigantic center on the Czech Republic team, was very, very impressive. And anytime he got a switch, he really punished that switch as well. And they they were loath to double team. They didn't really do it that much. And he was able to make them pay and had a couple and ones in that game. But Joker didn't even need to play for the rest of the first half. And I'm glad that he didn't because on a back-to-back early in the group stage, you don't necessarily want him to expend so much energy at the beginning. You want him to be able to play 32 to 35 minutes in all likelihood in that final game or in the the final couple of games. So playing him smaller number of minutes early on at this stage, definitely the thing that makes the most sense. He was really slow in the third on both ends, like offensively and defensively. Didn't really go inside wasn't really grabbing a bunch of rebounds, though he did grab more in the Nether or in the uh sorry, the Czech game as opposed to the Netherlands game. But he was pretty slow and it was whether it was by design or he was just being a little bit apathetic. Wasn't really getting the calls, wasn't really getting the the benefit of the doubt. And then he got a frustration technical when he finally went inside and didn't get that call. It woke him up. It took a little bit. The game got a little bit too close for comfort, but he did wake up, and he started doing a little bit of everything after that. Also, his backup, Ristich, much better in the second game than he was in the first, and it really showed in the putbacks, really showed in the rotations and the rebounds. I thought that they did a really nice job, especially on the offensive glass, when it was necessary. Netherlands game, 
Uh, Serbia was very good offensive glass. Second game, not as good, but still was an advantage for them. Game got to within 12 with about six minutes left, though, and Joker came back in. A little bit slow, started with a turnover, didn't really score, didn't really have that many attempts. He attempted one putback, but missed it. It's very rare that he misses putbacks. But then he was facilitating, doing a good job, setting people up. Set up Marinkovic, uh, set up Kalinic. I'm pretty sure he set up uh, he set up Lucic a couple of times, but Lucic didn't have a really have a good game. Uh, but it was still a comfortable, solid win. Uh, game got within eight at various points, but it never really got closer than that towards the end. And Serbia ultimately won 81 to 68 by 13 points. And you just have a lot of players that are playing really well. Uh, Marinkovic, very, very good. Kalinic, good in both games. Micic, obviously very good in both games. But I was impressed by a couple of things with Serbia overall. Their turnover margin compared to the turnovers that they're forcing is incredible. 31 turnovers forced so far, just to, and just 10 that they've given up. So it's on average about 15 and a half to 5 in a game. When you have that much of a margin, it makes it really easy to do the other stuff. And so they're able to get out in fast in fast break a couple times. They're able to uh, prevent some of the easy baskets by generating turnovers instead. That's a really, really good way for teams to win on the margins, to win the winning the turnover battle is a big deal. They're winning the battle on the offensive glass. Like I said, they're very good against the Netherlands, fine against Czech Republic, but it's very clear that Serbia, they play together really well. They play for each other really well. And though there is some flash and sizzle at times, there's there's a lot of flashy passing. It's not really with the scoring. The scoring isn't about all the flash. I think Yaramaz has some has some good flash to him, as does Micic, but for the most part. It's just a bunch of guys that are reading the floor really well, generating good looks for each other, and hitting some flashy passes in between. And it's really cool. It's good to see. Uh, the culture in Serbia, clearly very transparent in the way that they're playing. And this is a team that I think has represented their country really well. So very, very good to see. Um, another thing that's happening right now, Slovenia played against, uh, I think it was Bosnia and Herzegovina today. I didn't get to watch much of that game, but Vlatko, really, really impressive, did see the highlights. He's been shooting the shit out of the ball. And he's a guy that I think I'm going to feature in one of my articles over the course of these next couple weeks on players that are not currently in line to play that are probably going to play at some point and play pretty well. Like, I haven't projected for 200 total minutes next year. That's not going to happen. Like, he's probably going to play more than that. He'll probably play for Zeke Naji a little bit. Might play for Aaron Gordon a little bit. There will be opportunities for him to get out there. And the way that he continues to play for the national team, it's obvious that he can play at the NBA level. So I wonder if they can find some opportunities for him. Should be interesting. Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to go over a fun topic that I wanted to, to broach about the matchups in the Western Conference. But first, as everybody knows, football is back and nobody is more excited than your friends at Superbook Sports. 
Superbook is bringing Vegas-style wagering to the palm of your hands. And now they will match 100% of your first bet up to $1,000, no matter if the bet wins or loses. You don't have to be at the stadium to enjoy football this fall. Visit Superbook.com or download the Superbook Colorado app right now. Start getting it on all of the action. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700. and roll ryan blackburn here thank you so much everybody for tuning in i'm gonna flip the script a little bit on this one and, and go a completely different direction than Eurobasket. there will be plenty of time to talk about the rest of the Eurobasket games if you're listening to this on monday probably already a game that has gone on for uh serbia and Eurobasket. if not there will be others there will be other opportunities there are three more group stage games for serbia there's two more for slovenia and vlatko and then the brackets will be seeded by this time i think uh, on thursday if i'm not mistaken so should be very interesting to see how it all pans out but now let's flip flip the switch i wanted to talk about the western conference again it's tough for me right now because it's september 5th when this podcast comes out, I think. And I want to start getting into the season. We are just over a month away from actual basketball games. Actually, less than a month, like October 4th or October 3rd, one of those two, is when Denver actually debuts in their preseason games. They're going to play at Ball Arena in their first game against Oklahoma City on either October 3rd or October 4th. So it's getting close, and I'm rearing to go, rearing to talk about these games, these teams, because Denver really does have something to play for. So it's fun to talk about these things, but I don't want to starve the content out now, and then when I actually have to talk about it in a couple months or in a couple weeks, then there's not as much to talk about. But I think I could generate some stuff, and here's one of the things that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to rank the matchups in the West that I think will give Denver the most problems. This isn't necessarily the best teams, but it's the ones that are most geared to give Denver issues, that have given Denver issues in the past, that look like a team that when Denver is even at their healthiest and at their best, could still beat Denver in high leverage situations. And that's the playoffs. That's a, an important regular season game. There's definitely opportunities for the Nuggets to falter. And the teams at the top are going to be the ones that give them the largest opportunity to do so. So I've got it in five tiers. The first one is you're going to war against this team. Uh, tier two is individual matchups that could become problematic. Tier three is talented but beatable. Tier 4 is Denver should win this one. And Tier 5 is if Denver doesn't win, a team meeting should be held. Because that's how Denver has to approach the season, in my opinion. But right now, let's talk about Tier 1. I have two teams here, and they're the teams that I think Nuggets fans 
feel the strongest about. Number one, Golden State. Number two, Phoenix. Now, the reason I have Golden State at one and not Phoenix uh, is one, Steph Curry is the best player among those two franchises, among those two teams. And it's very difficult to stop Steph Curry, especially for a Nuggets team where Jokic is a traditional center. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for the Warriors to get him out into space. And Jokic doesn't really do well out in space. I think that's going to be an issue for Denver, whether they have Bruce Brown and Kentavious Caldwell Pope or not. And the best thing that Denver has going for them now in that matchup is that they have offensive firepower to really punish the Warriors. Jokic was able to captain a really strong offense against the Warriors, but now they have Murray and Porter that should be able to do even more against a Warriors team that uh, is, is very talented, to be clear, and they were deserving champions last year. But they got a little bit lucky in terms of the timing that they had, just as Phoenix got a little bit lucky the previous season. Neither of these teams are unbeatable, so it's, they're in Tier 1 here. But I could see Phoenix also being the top team. Denver really struggled with Phoenix the previous year. Chris Paul, Devin Booker, really tough matchups for Denver, obviously. Of course, the most minutes of any matchup, like any player that played against those guys, it was Faku Campazzo, Austin Rivers, Monte Morris, Will Barton, and Aaron Gordon, I think. Those were the five players that matched up against those guys the most. And they always tried to work for switches. They tried to get Jokic switched. They tried to get Michael Porter, especially onto Devin Booker, or especially Chris Paul. And Denver really struggled in those situations. The hope is that Porter can come back and be better in those situations, but we don't know that. And maybe that really puts Denver at a hamper. Jamal Murray coming back should be really good for both of those matchups, but especially Phoenix, because last year, or not last year, when Denver was without Murray against Phoenix, just in general, they couldn't go at Chris Paul as often. They couldn't go at Devin Booker as often and make those guys tired. It was always those guys kind of wearing down Denver, and then Jokic just sort of having to do a little bit of everything. Now, I feel like you can flip the script a little bit. And though Phoenix is still going to be a really tough matchup, and it's going to probably be a six or seven game series, either way, Denver can win that one. This isn't a tier... Like, I would rename the tiers if I didn't think that Denver had a chance against the Tier 1 teams. But I really do think, like, they will be going to war, but they can beat the Warriors and the Suns, even though they lost to them in each of the last two years. I do believe that Murray makes that much of a difference. And after having them some, done some uh, video work on Bruce Brown and KCP for an article that's coming out Monday... I think that Denver's going to be really good defensively, too, when they want to be. They've got a better group of defensive personnel than they did in the previous Phoenix matchup, and especially in this last Golden State matchup. So we're just going to have to see. But let's move to Tier 2 here. This will be the most interesting one. These are individual matchups that could become problematic for Denver. Number 3, Minnesota. Number 4, New Orleans. Number 5, 
the LA Clippers, and number six, Dallas. So Memphis isn't on here. Nobody else that like these are all kind of playoff teams, plus, and even New Orleans was a playoff team too. But people would want to think that the Clippers are going to be the toughest matchup or should even be in tier one. The Clippers are probably a team that has the best chance of anybody to go to the NBA Finals this year because of how much depth they have as long as Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are healthy. But I don't think they're the toughest matchup for Denver. They're always going to have to play Avisa Zubac against the Nuggets. Whenever they go with Marcus Morris or Nicholas Batum guarding Denver, the Nuggets have now seen that a couple of times and they're going to know how to deal with it. And one of the reasons why the Clippers could go to it and have some success last year was because Denver's spacing was poor. Now, you've got a player in Michael Porter who you can't leave. You've got a player in Jamal Murray who you just can't leave. Aaron Gordon's still a guy that you can double off of, but he's also such a big target around the rim that you have to be careful with that. And Bruce Brown also gives that that energy where if you double off of him, unlike with Faku, like Bruce Brown, even though he's a small guard, will go finish over the top of you. Or he has a really nice floater and can definitely make it work in the intermediate area, the, the in-between zone. The Clippers aren't the toughest matchup in Tier 2 for Denver. I think Minnesota is. And the, the matchups last year, I think, were really indicative of that too, where Carl Anthony Towns, when Jokic was matched up with him, was really, really good. Carl Anthony Towns wasn't a great defender against Jokic, but he was scoring at will. And Jokic couldn't really stop Towns. Like, just going back and looking through some of those logs, Towns really gave it to Jokic. He was very, very good. Uh, Gave out just as much damage to Jokic, if not more so, than what Jokic did to Minnesota. I think that's going to persist. I honestly do. There are some ways that Denver can really match up with that. Like, they can have Jokic on Gobert, but then you have Aaron Gordon or Michael Porter on Towns, and I assume it's going to be Aaron Gordon. So what does that mean for Anthony Edwards? What does Denver do? Well, you're probably going with Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, which means that Porter is probably on Jada McDaniels. And that makes logical sense. But there's also a problem that KCP isn't as large as a guy like Aaron Gordon. And so a player like Anthony Edwards is very, very powerful, can get to where he wants to go really easily. And though KCP is a very smart and high IQ defender. He's also not the most powerful guy. So this could be a matchup that he just loses out the physical battle to. And then staggering Gobert and Towns, I think could make things really difficult for Denver's bench. No matter what, Zeke Naji, Jeff Green, or DeAndre Jordan is going to have to match up with Gobert or Towns at some point. That's a little scary. That's a little, little scary. I think that Najee has the potential to match up with those guys. And a switching defense actually makes sense against Gobert in a lot of ways, but those guys have to be strong as boxing out. And if Gobert gets on the offensive glass, that's how he makes up the difference. He sets good screens and creates good space 
for his teammates, that's how he makes up the difference in those situations. So Denver's going to have to be good. They're going to have to figure it out. And Minnesota's going to be tough. New Orleans is also above the Clippers. And I know that that's a controversial thing, but I'm actually really high in New Orleans this year. I know that they have some stuff to figure out, but on paper, you have CJ McCollum, Brandon Ingram, and Zion Williamson. Any of those guys can go off for 20. Any of those guys can go off for 30. Like, there's no doubt about it. Those guys are very, very strong. They can score at will, and they can do it in different ways and, and ways that other opponents just can't really stop. They can't really do anything about it. With Ingram, he can hit those contested shots. Same thing with CJ McCollum. And with Zion, sometimes even your best isn't good enough because he jumps over the top of you or jumps through you. So that's always really good. And then Herb Jones strikes me as a player that will give Jamal Murray some issues when Jamal comes back because Herb Jones is just so long and athletic and very, very instinctual that Murray's going to have some trouble creating some space from a guy like that. So Denver's going to have to figure some other things out. Maybe Brandon Ingram's, or maybe uh, not Brandon Ingram, maybe Michael Porter is good enough to put up 25 in those kinds of matchups. And maybe Nikola Jokic just does what he did last year and puts up 38, 11, and 11 in one of the matchups, and then 46, 12, and 11 in the other big matchup against New Orleans. There were so many good games from Nikola Jokic against the, the Pelicans, and that's still something that's probably going to happen. But Valanchunas can give him some uh, stuff on the way back, and it's not like Denver's going to really be able to stop New Orleans, I don't think. So that's when I'd be a little bit worried about if I were the Nuggets. They're going to give Denver some issues. And then Dallas, Luka Doncic, individual matchup. Like he's going to seek out Nikola Jokic and Michael Porter Jr. in those isolations. Though KCP, Bruce Brown, and Aaron Gordon are all relatively good matchups against Doncic, Luka just might be good enough that it doesn't matter. And Denver's going to have to figure it out. Though I do think that. The Mavericks going bigger rather than smaller is a bad thing. It's a bad thing against a team like the Nuggets because going bigger slows them down. And Denver wants to play slow. They want to play in a half-court game. I think that feeds right into Denver's hands. And them going bigger, I think it makes it easier for Denver to score, honestly. So we will see. Now, Tier 3. You've got two teams, Memphis and the LA Lakers at seven and eight. This is the talented but very beatable tier. Denver was uh, one and three against Memphis last year. I have a hard time counting much of those games because one, Jamal Murray wasn't there. And two, Michael Porter was there for two of them, but they were very early in the season and he was very clearly hampered. So I feel like this matchup is just going to be very different for the Nuggets, but I know that Jokic can go up against Steven Adams and be fine. I know he can go up against Jaron Jackson Jr. when he's healthy and be fine. And then Jamal Murray is not going to be stopped by Dylan Brooks, Desmond Bain, or John Morant. And Michael Porter, he's going to shoot over those guys too. So this is one where I think Memphis is not going to be able to stop Denver at all. That's going to be a lot of fun. 
But Memphis is also a very good offensive team. So they might get out in transition and just clown Denver at times. So this is tier three. Like, I would favor Denver for sure in these matchups. But I do think it's possible that those teams win. Same with number eight, the LA Clippers, or the LA Lakers. Especially if Russell Westbrook gets traded. If he gets moved for Conley and Bogdanovich, those guys, very, very talented, have given Denver issues in the past. Add those guys to LeBron and AD, and you've got a very talented team. Like I said, talented, but very beatable. Tier four is four teams, 9, 10, 11, and 12. This is Denver being like they should win these games, pretty much guaranteed, but there will be a couple of those where they drop. Number nine is Portland. They aren't in the talented but very beatable tier, despite the fact that they might finish above the Lakers. They're not going to finish above Memphis, I don't think. Dame is still very good. Anthony Simons is learning how to be very good. Jeremy Grant is not the level of player that he's built to be. Yusuf Nurkic uh, doesn't really give Denver any trouble anymore, so not really sure what to think about that one at all. But it does seem to me like Portland is in this tier as opposed to the one above. Number 10 is Sacramento. Sacramento's given Denver trouble in the past. I don't really need to go into much detail here. They should be beatable. Like Denver should win each Sacramento matchup, but sometimes they find a way to lose them. Number 11 is still Utah because they have those veterans. If they trade some of those guys like a Conley, like a Bogdanovich, like a Jordan Clarkson, Malik Beasley, if they trade all of those guys, then they're going to move into a different tier. Uh, But honestly, maybe I should put Oklahoma City above them. Maybe I'll flip that. Oklahoma City goes at 11. Utah goes at 12. Uh, That's how I actually feel. Oklahoma City is very good, even without Chet Holmgren. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is extremely talented. And though Denver has two guys in Bruce Brown and uh, KCP that make a lot of sense to go up against SGA this time, it does feel like they could still, like SGA and the Thunder could still score on Denver, especially if Denver just doesn't care, which they sort of don't care a lot against the Thunder. So we'll see how it looks, but that feels to me like a game where Denver will drop one of those games and then they'll win the others and they'll be closer than they should be, just like last year. And then tier five, this is the if Denver doesn't win, a team meeting will be held tier. If Denver doesn't sweep Houston, if they don't sweep San Antonio, then they should, I think, have some questions. Those guys, those teams are like they've got some talented young pieces. Jalen Green is very good. Shangun is pretty good. Jabari Smith will be good. San Antonio has, I mean, they've got like Devin Vassell, Kelton Johnson, Yaka Pertle, and some other rookies, but Look, Denver has to win those games. If they want to get to where they go, they will win those games. It's plain and simple. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to talk about defense. We're going to talk about who I think the best defender on the Nuggets is right now. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Final segment, Big Axe and Roll. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. 
let's wrap it up final segment here i want to talk about this one category who is the best defender on the denver nuggets right now and maybe who will be the best defender after the season after this upcoming season I think it's interesting to think about. I think that Denver has four candidates here, really three, but I'm going to include four for posterity's sake. The first is Aaron Gordon, incumbent, somebody who Denver relies upon for so much. They're not going to rely upon him as much or for as much this year, and that's probably a good thing. It'll probably help him be better. He really struggled on the the ball, uh, the point of attack last year and that just wasn't his game. He's six foot eight, versatile as a kind of a three, four, five defender who can switch on to ones and twos sometimes, but I do think that Gordon, as strong as he is, he does have some weaknesses in his game and doesn't really make as many plays as you think he would. For somebody as athletic as he is, doesn't really get a lot of steals, doesn't really get a lot of blocks. Very much more a fundamental physical defender. But I feel like if he went for more plays and put himself into a position where he could impact the plays a little bit more, then he would be viewed as a different level of defender than he really is right now. He's solid. He's good. But I don't think that he's the best defender on the Nuggets. Zeke Nagy? He's a guy that I'm including into this conversation. Probably doesn't deserve to be there yet, in all honesty. But I am very high on Zeke's defense. I think he's one of those guys that kind of in the realm of an Aaron Gordon is going to be a switch defender, is going to be a big body who can guard three, four, five, who the Nuggets are going to want to switch onto the perimeter at times. And they can lean into that skill set this year in ways that they couldn't really last year with DeMarcus Cousins at center. Uh, if they have DeAndre Jordan at center this year, they're not going to be able to do it. If you have Zeke Nagy at center, where he's defending fives or maybe some fours, then he's going to be able to switch on the ball. When other teams are running pick and roll, Zeke can switch onto those point guards or shooting guards. And if it's in a late shot, shot clock scenario, then he's as good as Denver has in terms of isolation defenders. And that means a lot to me. Like There's a lot of players that Denver could go against that feel like when they get a switch onto Zeke, or when Zeke switches onto them, that they're getting a mismatch. It's not really the case. Zeke actually does a really good job in isolation pretty consistently. And I would like to see him continue to get those opportunities if he can, because I think that Denver could build a really solid defensive unit around that skill set. And so he has to be included into this conversation, or at least I think he will be in it by the end of the season. Next one, and the next two actually, are the two newest nuggets into the rotation. First one is Contavious Caldwell-Pope, the starter, most likely. He's going to be a guy that Denver trusts as a solid defender, not necessarily your on-ball ace, but somebody who will execute the scheme to the max. When he's facing off against Steph Curry, Devin Booker, Chris Paul, Jordan Poole, John Morant, Bradley Beal, Luka Doncic, whoever. He's going to be solid in all of those situations. I was going back through some film of him with the with the Wizards, with the Lakers. 
and he didn't have good defensive film last year, but I honestly think he was kind of phoning it in. But the one thing that really stood out when, especially when going back to the Sun series that he played with the Lakers back in 2021, uh, the round before Denver played the Suns, was KCP was guarding Devin Booker a lot, but a lot of Devin Booker's possessions were against other guys. And the reason they were against other guys is they're trying to screen KCP off of him every time. They didn't like to go at that matchup. They wanted to go at somebody else. And if you force others to kind of go through that process every time, is it going to be tough for Michael Porter Jr. when he has that same thing happen to him? Yeah. But can Jamal Murray do it? Yes. Can Aaron Gordon do it? Yes. So I think if you're always starting with KCP on the ball and then you get switched off the ball, it might feel like it's a negligible thing. But KCP is also a very strong team defender where he makes good rotations. He gets into passing lanes. He sees the court really well. And he seems like a player that is just going to raise the entire level of awareness for Denver for the team defense. Sometimes he'll have to be deployed. Sometimes he will uh, not necessarily know where to go and he'll have to be told to. But by the end of the season, I think that he's going to be one of Denver's best. He'll be in Denver's best defensive lineups for sure. And I think he's going to be Denver's most trusted wing option, even over the next the next guy that I'm going to talk about, which is Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown, I think, is the best defender on the Nuggets. I did some data work on him. I did some film work on him. There's an article going up on Monday about how Denver is going to use KCP, how they're going to use Bruce Brown. And what I came away with was really, really impressive. Bruce Brown is one of those guys that's kind of hiding in plain sight as an elite defender. On a team like the Nets, it's really easy to look bad defensively. There's a lot of guys there that don't try. There's a lot of guys there that are not defensively talented. Bruce Brown was not that. He was trying. He was doing his best. He was making things work with a team in Brooklyn where they're Effort basically wavered for much of the season. Bruce Brown's effort never really wavered these last two years. He was effective in a lot of these matchups. Sometimes you get uh, scored on. Sometimes there are players that could take advantage of him in different situations. But more often than not, Bruce Brown was making things very difficult for the opposition. Just a couple stats here. 2.1% steal rate for Bruce Brown. 2.6% block rate, which is really high. Among the 134 players that played as many minutes as Bruce Brown, Brown's 2.1% steal rate ranked 19th in the NBA, and the 2.6% block rate ranked 23rd in the NBA. There's a lot of centers that are up there. There's a lot of bigs that are up there. Very rare for a guard to get up there. Actually, it's so rare. Bruce Brown's the highest rated guard in block percentage this year. There are a couple of other guys that were near him, like Derek White. But for the most part, it was just Bruce Brown. He was making plays on the perimeter, on the interior. He blocked 12 three-pointers this year. Showed a really nice awareness, really nice timing on blocking those shots. 
And he's one of those guys that is just in the airspace of the guy that he's guarding. He's a good point of attack defender. He could switch. He could uh, hit some passing lanes at some point. That was definitely a thing that he did. But for the most part, I think his best minutes previously and going forward are the ones where he's on the ball, the ones where he's guarding the point of attack. And that's going to go really well against the best pick and roll players in the Western Conference, where you've got your Chris Pauls, you've got your even Devin Booker, though I do think the KCP will probably guard Booker. So it's going to be Chris Paul, John Morant, Steph Curry probably will, but you also could throw Bruce Brown on Jordan Poole in a lot of matchups, and that would probably be one of the best ways to neutralize one of Golden State's best options. And there's some other pick-and-roll options that you could go at, like De'Aaron Fox is a guy that he's had success against. Jalen Green is somebody that I don't think he's played much against, but he would have success against Jalen Green. But there's other guys too. And he switches, he makes plays, he's active, he's got this long wingspan, but also has springs in his legs. Those really help when trying to make defensive plays. And above all, that's just what Denver really, really needs. They needed a perimeter playmaker on the defensive end, not just somebody on the offensive end. They've got Jokic for the playmaking. They've got Murray and Porter for the scoring. They needed somebody that could make defensive plays because Jokic, he has good steal numbers, but his block numbers are pretty lackluster. Now, if you add back in Michael Porter as a weak side rim protector, you add in Bruce Brown, who's going to be flying around the court. You add Jamal Murray, who's got the size advantage and the athleticism advantage over Monte Morris. And you add KCP, who I watched basically all 26 of his block attempts this last year. And my God, it's just a strip steal. Every time somebody tries to shoot on him and gather the ball, when they bring the ball up, he swipes down every time. And sometimes he gets called for a foul, but he's so good at it. And so I think Denver, with the defensive personnel that they have now, they are going to be good. They might be like they're not going to be really good defensively. Like they'll probably be in the top 15, but probably not quite top 7 or so. But if you told me they finished ninth, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. If you told me they finished 14th, I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. Hopefully they finish first in the offense. But I do think that Denver's at this stage right now where they have the talent to finish top 10 on both ends of the floor again. The hope is that you finish as one of the best offenses in the world. But I'm sure Michael Malone would trade that for the fifth best offense and the ninth best defense. And honestly, I think I might too. Denver has to be able to do things both ways this year. It's the only way they're going to be matching up and winning against all of these Western Conference teams, especially the teams that like to take advantage of them defensively. Denver has to be able to stop some people. Now they've got some good personnel to do it. Hopefully this is enough to surround Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. with the right defensive personnel that really helps to accentuate what they do best on offense. Hopefully this covers things up 
enough on the defensive end, but I think we're going to be talking about Bruce Brown a little bit differently. He might be towards the Gary Payton the second uh, level of defense if he gets done with a playoff run and has shut down some good guards along the way. Should be fun. That'll do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, brought to you by Superbook Sports. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Going to have a guest later this week. Hopefully it's, well, maybe somebody from Serbia who uh, who uh, went to Serbia recently that, that might try to come on the podcast. That would be, that'd be pretty fun. Going to try to get some of those guys on. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Talk to you guys very soon.